This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, as Damien said, as we're continuing this summer to learn a new language, a language of how to speak to God and how to address God in every situation, we come today to the Psalms of Lament, and my favorite psalm, actually, Uh, a psalm that in various situations I have found on my lips more than any other, and perhaps it's jarring to think about the idea of lament, it's Something that, of all the various types of psalms, is probably the most foreign to most of us, uh, particularly those of us in the modern Western world uh, and in a fairly well-to-do society where we tend to be rather superficial and to keep the substantial at bay, where we tend to focus on the major chord and to keep the minor key at a distance. But the most common psalm in the entire Psalter is the lament. And it seems to me that there's something profoundly instructive in that reality. That God realizes that it's not simply that we need to learn how to give thanks for the good gifts of God, but that even in our pain and struggle, we need to be instructed and molded to know how to feel and express and address the discomfort and the overwhelmedness that so often strike us in individual and in corporate ways. And so in this altar we have corporate laments where Israel, through the voice of David or another leader, would be guided to lament their common situation. And I trust we can look at our wider culture, we can look at our communities, we can look at our nation and our world and we can find occasions where as a church we ought to lament our sin and struggle, where as a city and a community we ought to lament our division and the way in which we fail to care for our neighbor. As a, as a world, we ought to lament the way in which we are at war, the way in which we struggle to live alongside one another peaceably. But then there are the most common laments, individual laments, like Psalm 13, where David addresses pains and troubles. And that's where we want to spend our time this morning. And there's three things that I think David's words instruct us in to direct the way in which we address the truth of our pain and struggle. 
The first thing we can see in verses 1 and 2 is the importance of singing the blues. David does not flinch. David does not overlook the blue hue of reality, but he names it and he lingers over it with some specificity and care. He begins with this big banner of the blues. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? But he goes on to get very particular about what seems to be panging him in this moment and what he wonders when it will finally ever relent. He goes on, he says, how long will you hide your face from me? He can name the loss of conversation and of intimacy, of a sense of the very presence of God, feeling instead alienation and absence and a void, a loneliness that is profound and overwhelming that's almost palpable. And so he names the fact that God's face seems to be turned from him, a divine shunning he feels. He goes on, how long must I take counsel in my soul? Guidance seems to be absent. He, he knows he needs to step forward. He needs to step out. He needs wisdom to guide his people. He needs discernment to order his own individual steps. And it seems as though he's left only with his own conscience. And we've seen where that's gotten him if you read the stories of First and Second Samuel. How long will he be left only with his own counsel, only with his own sense, which seems so disoriented? God seems to be going mute in giving guidance and instruction. It seems as though there's no clarity about where to go. And so David names his need for counsel from above. How long will I have sorrow in my heart all the day, he says. Comfort consolation, the kind of peace that he knows God offers. This seems to be such a glaring absence. It seems to be so far away. He can only feel the immediate ache and the pain of his sin, of disappointment. He finds nothing of that kind of comfort, the balm for his soul that he longs for. How long will God leave him without that kind of consolation? Finally, perhaps most brutally, most emphatically, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He's named the distance he feels from God, the lack of clarity about what he ought to do, the fact that he seems to ache and struggle, and at the same time he realizes other people don't seem to be suffering this. Now it's, it's crucial, we can very easily think, well David's a king, and I know he had really famous enemies. And it's very easy to focus on a couple episodes in his life, famous episodes, episodes that the kids upstairs will sing and learn about at times, that he faces off against this giant Goliath, and he has to go pick up these stones and fling them across the battlefield to kill a guy who's heavily armored and imposing, and you think, well, I don't have enemies like that. No one is trying to kill me. Or perhaps we read on later and we realize that because of his sin, in raping Bathsheba, in murdering her husband, and committing treason, because of the, the terrible acts that he commits famously in his life, David's family splinters, and his son actually pursues him. And the, the kingdom is, is in many ways fractured, and his family is fractured. And you think, I don't have someone out to get me. I don't have this kind of violent effort. I'm not a king. And it can be somewhat off-putting, as though we can't identify, but it's crucial to realize that King David's life is 
marked by what we might call the mundane struggle of the ordinary king. If you actually study the history of Israel and you study the history of David's life, it's not just that on big occasions there's a Saul or a Goliath or an Absalom, but that there's virtually no year of his reign where they're not at war. And war doesn't mean someone's simply specifically out for David. It simply means they're a competitor. They're a neighboring kingdom. They're trying to make it and to survive and to grow and to thrive. And so they compete with David and the Israelites. And you and I do face the challenge of competition. Whether it's imposed or just assumed, we do look around us and see others getting ahead. We do look a pew over in a section to the side, and we consider that family that's got it all together. We look down the street, and we see someone who seems to be moving along so beautifully, so easily, compared to the struggles we face. That's what David's describing here. Not just the amazing opposition of people out to get you, but the fact that Others seem to be experiencing what you don't feel you're experiencing. You desire God's presence. You desire God's guidance. You desire God's consolation and comfort. And just as you don't feel you have it, so you sense that others do. And it creates an even more profound experience of struggle. What's wrong with me? Am I accursed? Is God out to get me in particular over and against them with his blessing. And we live in a, a day and an age in a church where if we're honest, we sanitize our spirituality. We, we may have churches that denounce the prosperity gospel, but that sing prosperity songs. Always joyful, always happy, lacking in the lament, lacking in the sense of the blues that we struggle with. We can so easily be frustrated by the fake stories and fake news out in the wider culture, and yet we can so easily slip into the mode of telling the fake news of our lives when someone passes us in the lobby and you just say, oh, everything's going great. Or when you tremble before naming something before God and you refuse to bring before God the, the struggle and the frustration that is so plainly a part of your day and of your sleepless nights. It can be so easy to believe that God doesn't want to hear that and God can't have that. And yet David and the Psalter teach us that this is ordinary as can be. And that we're given words to address God with our struggle, with our worry, with our frustration, and with our pain. God isn't in any way intimidated by our discomfort and we ought not be more sentimental than our creator and redeemer. And so the first thing that we see here is this profound instruction that Christians are not just freed but guided to sing the blues and to name their troubles before God. But I think there's a second thing we see here. And we see it profoundly in verses three and four as we read on. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. You'll see this concern that God would hear and answer and that God would do so in a way that it seems only those around, the competitors, the neighbors are receiving. But notice in the middle of verse three there, 
there is one request, one request. He's named many struggles and many pains, but there is one ask. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. It's here that we see the nature of tragic faith. The way in which being persons of faith doesn't remove the pain, but first it deepens our experience of pain. Let me explain that. Think about the nature of darkness. You and I aren't terribly challenged by darkness. You turn on the light switch. You turn on the flashlight. Were you to go back into David's world, you would find that darkness is a very different experience. Things shut down and you are incapable of doing anything. You are going to go to sleep because there's nothing left to do. You're not going to find illumination in other forms. People aren't staying up late reading by and large or watching television. They're not driving around, you know, throwing a, a hood light there on the front of their horse. When the lights go out, when the sun goes down, that's it. And you're done providing for yourself. Darkness in the Bible is a description so often of our complete powerlessness. We're going to see momentarily as we reflect upon Psalm 88, another profound lament that darkness is named for a despair over our ability to fix something. And that's what David is confessing here. Not just that he's lacking a sense of, of presence and, and of, of togetherness, friendship. Not just that he's lacking a sense of guidance and discernment. Not just that he's lacking any sense of comfort or consolation, but that he can't fix any of those things. It's not within his capacity to do so. And this is precisely where this psalm cuts against our modern experience. Now, we know that the modern world is not an easier world. There are lots of conveniences, and in many ways, life is better, but we've just been through the most violent century in all of human history. We do not live in a world that is somehow less threatening and imposing, where people are less at war with each other and so forth. All the promises of modern progress for all the good blessings they do in fact bring are also marred and hewed by terrible curses and strife. But it's fascinating to note, the literary critic George Steiner has written a book a book called The Death of Tragedy, and he talks about how modern people like you and I are incapable of tragedy. He says there's a thinness to expressing our pain. Because we live in a world, we live in a society that's got what he calls an anti-tragic focus. Whatever the situation, whatever the pain and the struggle, we trust there's some way to fix it, to manage it, to cope with it, to misdirect it and mismanage it, to somehow move it, adjust it, get round it, and that that sense of human ingenuity actually thins our expressions of pain. That's why a variety of Christians have pointed out that the gospel and the biblical vision that were presented in the Psalms actually deepen our experience of pain. I had a, a college roommate who's a professional musician, and I have not a musical bone in my body and we would listen to music together. We would go to a club, we would listen to something on the CD player in our apartment, and whatever the setting, we could talk about it afterward, 
And my experience of bad moments was about equivalent to saying, well, it was this and then it was this. Whereas my friend, who'd been trained, who'd been tutored, who was a professional, who knew what music was supposed to be like, he could be disgusted by bad music. Not because he's a pompous, arrogant person, but because he knows what harmony's like. He knows what rhythm's meant to be. He understands the way in which music is supposed to play out, and so he can actually suffer the bad note or the false movement in a way that I can't possibly sense. All I can muster is, that didn't terribly please me. But he could have almost moral indignation at somebody who didn't finish off a piece right. Christians, through the grace of God, are made alert to what we're meant to experience, that God has made us for fellowship with him and friendship with one another. Christians, through the grace of God, are given anew the presence of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the hope of glory in Jesus Christ. And that means that one of the great gifts of faith is attuning us to the deeper reality of pain. Not simply pacifying or medicating it or misdirecting it, but rather getting underneath it to the tragic character of our life that we, of all people, know we cannot fix it. So, for instance, the Baptist Cornell West will point out that it's one thing to know that you've got problems. It's another thing entirely to know that you live in a catastrophic circumstance. Or the Methodist Stanley Harawas will point out that understanding sin, sin is a theological achievement. He doesn't mean stealing from the offering plate is a theological achievement. He means knowing you've got a problem is one thing, and everybody knows that. Knowing that you have a problem before a holy God. Knowing not only that the void you feel is there and palpable, but that it's the void of God's blessing. That is to grow. That is to name it more accurately. That is to feel it more fully. And it's crucial to see David doesn't just say, I hurt. He doesn't just say, people are wronging me. He doesn't just say, things are tough. But he deepens the struggle and he laments it for what it really is. That he's not enjoying the presence of God as he knows he ultimately will. And as he knows that it's been promised to him. And so one of the remarkable gifts of faith is that we live in the story of the gospel, that Jesus himself displays that the way to receive the crown is to bear the cross, that the path to glory always involves suffering, and that one of the remarkable paradoxes of faith is that we will invariably experience deeper sorrow as Christians on our way to a more profound comfort. And so before the gospel enables us to experience release and joy and freedom from sorrows, it's, it's going to insist that we deepen our sense of discomfort and frustration, that we realize that we can't fix it, that we need God to light up our eyes lest we sleep the sleep of death, that we need God to provide illumination and help from the outside, for we have no resources of our own on the inside. But there's a third thing that I think the the psalm calls us to as well. In verses five and six, we see how David 
struggling with many things, is able to lean in to the practice of lament. In verses 5 and 6, there's a turn. There's a, a jarring shift, it seems. He's been attesting all these struggles, and then he focuses on this one deep and dire need, and now he offers a very different statement. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. I'm reminded of the old African-American spiritual. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Glory, hallelujah. And that final statement does not naturally seem to follow from the three that precede. Trouble and sorrow and trouble beyond others' sight and comprehension. And yet this confession of glory and of praise. But the spiritual went on. And in the next stanza, there's one modification, one specification that's crucial. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Glory, hallelujah. And there's a reminder that our hope, and it is hope, neither optimism nor pessimism, neither naivete nor cynicism, Christian hope is based on a person, not a philosophy, not a program, not a, a promise of mastery, but the call to the right master, the right provider. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody but Jesus. And it's there that we see lament in its most profound. For Jesus came down amongst us. And you'll remember that he was called the man of sorrows. And that doesn't just describe the cross. This is someone who has misunderstood his entire life. And the gospel accounts only offer a few small snapshots. But we know he's misunderstood by mom and dad as a, an adolescent. Worried about him, concerned over him, and he's right where he should have been in the temple. We know that he's misunderstood by his disciples, by those who've walked with him and those he's invested so much in, so that they try and stop him from going to the cross and they try and direct him in other ways. He's misunderstood, of course, by the religious authorities, those who view him as a threat, those who view him as somehow subverting the way of God. We know that he's misunderstood by Rome and by the powers that be, and so they kill him. He was the man of sorrows. And we read in Hebrews 2, of course, that we are to run the race set before us, a race that, like the great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us, is going to involve pain and struggle, because we're reminded in the chapter before that all of them suffered in different ways, and all of them were looking for a city yet to come, a new city. And we're to do so looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And his faith took this form, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us. That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And we often think, okay, I know he was on the cross, and I know nails hurt, and I know dying can't be pleasant, but he was God, so it must have been less painful. It must have somehow been sanitized. We can, we can have a more sentimental portrait of what's going on, but I want to submit to you exactly the opposite, that precisely because he was God and precisely because he was perfect as a human, 
the pain was all the more. And this is one of the realities we attest when we say that he descended into hell. That among other things, it means there were three people dying on that hill that day and only one suffered God-forsakenness. And that Jesus, who at his baptism and his transfiguration knew nothing but the divine smile, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, booming out from the heavenly PA, here on Golgotha, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He laments. And he laments with a deeper sense of tragedy and the blues than you and I will ever muster. Far from his perfection and his being morally upstanding, somehow mitigating and minimizing the pain, it accents, it turns up the volume on the pain. He knows what he's lost in a way I don't. He knows not just what pain is, but what sorrow is in a way that, I can only start to imagine. And he despises the shame of that moment. Far from going the stoic route of suggesting that he just sort of sticks out his chest and with a strong backbone and a chin up, he goes through it. No, he despises the shame of that moment. He looks it in, in the eye squarely and names it as what it is, sorrowful and shameful and despicable. And he cries out with the words of David, with the words of Psalm 22, a lamentful cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I don't know what your particular struggles are this morning. You look at those a pew over and a section in front and you perhaps see the life that you wish you'd had. Kids who turned out right or perhaps even the opportunity to have children. Perhaps you consider the family down the street or the man or the woman a floor up and, and they seem to be advancing and they seem to have clarity about their life and you seem to just be trying to make it one day at a time. Perhaps you see the person who can just seemingly walk a bit faster than you. They're healthy, they're vigorous and your worry and struggle only seems to lead to the pounds being added on and to the cholesterol adding up. Perhaps you consider the experiences of your past, ways in which sexual addiction, ways in which uh, financial indiscretion have somehow shaped your life and you, you seemingly can't get out of it. Even though you're repenting and confessing, you're still marked by experiences that have gone long before you. Perhaps you try to love, you try to care, but the fact that your family has fractured, the fact that you're from a broken home seemingly means there's more people to love than you seem to have arms to hug. And there are more demands and needs than you feel capable of meeting. David gives us words. And Jesus shows us the way of faith. That lament doesn't answer, and it doesn't involve the mastery of our situation, but it's a way of naming our struggle and our incapacity before our heavenly master. And that one of the paths of trusting him is by following his guidance in his holy word, by following the example and model of his incarnate son, that we too, when we face the struggle, the worry, the confusion, the disconsolation, we name it, we call it for what it is, we sing the blues and we learn the language of tragedy, but that we also do so with hope. Because we know like David does, 
that people have faced this before. And we know in a way that David can only glimpse, in a way, this side of Jesus and of what we learn from Hebrews 12, that this has been answered in an even more profound way. That we can see not just the sorrow of our daily lives, but the shame of Calvary. And we can see it lamented, and we can see the love of God expressed even there. Even in those moments of pain and struggle and overwhelmedness and our incapacity. And so, like Jesus, we can do the only thing we can do, which is to pray and to call out and to express faith and hope in the midst of abject trials. Let's do that now. Father, you are our Father, and so often we confess we feel orphaned. You are our Creator, and so often we wonder as to whether we were quite made right. You are our Redeemer, and so often we worry that our struggles cannot be righted and our sin cannot be put away. And so we thank you for the hope-inspiring words of the psalmist. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Son that there, there, and there alone we can find hope. That there in your gospel we can be reminded that you are a God who brings life where none can be expected. That in the face of Jesus we can be reminded that your face will shine upon us. That in the words of your servant David, we can learn to name the pain and alienation that we feel and the overwhelmedness that we sense. And we pray that you would make us truth tellers. We pray that you would make us those who give the gift to the world not only of hope, but of honesty. That we would not be threatened by our weakness, but that there we would find your strength. That we would not be in any way threatened by our sin, but that there we would find your redemption. That we would not be threatened by our death, but that there we would find your resurrecting life. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for your table. We thank you for your family to whom you've drawn us. May we be a community who points one another to the truth and to the grace that's only found in you. It's in that name of God.